Christ is risen, indeed he is risen. Welcome to this week's episode of the Divine Lantern. We pray you are having a blessed week. With the blessing of his eminence, Metropolitan Basilios, the Antiochian Orthodox Archdiocese presents a podcast to educate, empower and enrich. I'm your host, Germana, from the Church of the Nativity of the Theotokos in New South Wales. In this week's episode, we'll be joined by Deacon Theophan Nahas. This will be followed by short readings from our Philokalic Nourishment series, Concluding this week's episode is a reading from our Orthodox Library. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given too much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. First, let them be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These words, brothers and sisters in Christ, are found in the first pastoral letter of St. Paul to St. Timothy, chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. As we just heard, it offers a brief summary about how a deacon must act and serve. As part of the Divine Lantern's Our Life in the Church series, I have decided to talk about the role of a deacon. First, I will offer an introduction about how the role of the deacon was established. Then I will talk about some practical tasks the deacon does. And finally, I will tie this into the theme of our life in the church. Firstly, the word deacon means the one who serves. In the Acts of the Apostles, we read at the start of chapter 6 that seven deacons were chosen to administer to and support the community. They were faithful, wise men of good standing, chosen from among the laity by the laity, and were ordained by the twelve apostles through the laying on of hands. 
In time, the role of the deacon became tied into the major orders of the church, alongside the bishop and the priest. Therefore, in line with worship, the deacons would also assist in the church services, and not only with practical administrational tasks. They would act as an assistant to the bishop, and occasionally would also help the priest at church services as well. This included services of the holy mysteries, or sacraments as well. And one of the main tasks of the deacon, for example, in the early church, was to help with baptism. And an interesting fact here, due to practical implications and the rapid growth of the faith, there eventually also became another female role, known as the role of the deaconess. Whilst never forming a rank within the official orders of the church, this title is still used amongst the wives of deacons to this day. A very well-known and influential deacon that we read about also in the book of Acts is St. Stephen, who is not only given the title of the first deacon, but also the first martyr. During his impending death and trial, which can be read about in Acts 7, he witnessed to the faith and spoke boldly about Jesus Christ in front of the masses gathered. This led him to be stoned to death, but his witness lives on in the life of the church, and this is essentially what it means to be a martyr of the faith in the orthodox perspective, namely someone who bears witness to the truth of Christ, even in difficult circumstances, which, as stated, may even lead to death. This witness remains prevalent to this day, not only through the role of the deacon, but through the role of the whole body of clergy, as well as through the expression, service, and love showed by the laity also, which I will discuss later. However, for now, let us turn to the practical role of the deacon. At church, you will notice on the iconostasis, which is the main wall of icons which separates the altar from the rest of the church, two doors on either side of the main door. These are also known as the deacon's doors. Therefore, the deacons, before saying any petitions in the service, will tend to exit from one door and enter through the other. The deacons say their petitions from the solea, or staged area, just in front of this icon screen. Thus, you will notice that the deacon is allowed to move very often. They walk around and sense the people. They assist the bishop by holding candles, and they process around the church with the rest of the clergy and altar servers. This constant movement along with the unique form of vestment they wear, which involves a long belt-like piece of material that is normally wrapped around the body and held often in the right hand, known as the orarion, signifies their presence as that of the angels. This is also why on these same deacon's doors, the archangels Michael and Gabriel are generally depicted. The deacon can never serve alone, 
they must always take the blessing of either the hierarch present or the priest who represents the hierarch, the hierarch which is of course the bishop. Therefore a deacon cannot serve the liturgy alone. Also they cannot perform any sacraments or services of the holy mysteries. In a general capacity, yes, they read prayers, similar to how any lay person can read prayers, but they cannot act in any formal service of prayer. For example, they do not wear the stole, which is the garment that bishops and priests wear around their neck, that they use at every prayer, whether it be at a cemetery or hospital or at any blessing service. This is reserved only for the bishop and priest. Therefore, the deacon always acts as an assistant. In saying this, there are also ranks similar to that of the bishopric and presbytery within the diaconate. These include roles such as the archdeacon, who would be the most senior deacon if there were more than one present. Traditionally, there were seven but these days it is common to have less than this number. On that note, there should not be confusion surrounding other minor orders of the church which also may use the term deacon. For example, some minor orders of the church which are not included within the formal three of bishop, priest and deacon include acolyte or the person who maintains and assists in the altar space, readers, chanters or sub-deacon. Whilst at times the dress, mainly during church services, mostly involving a long black robe, may look similar, these roles are separate and must not be conflated into one. So on this note, you can see how the role of the deacon, namely as server, also influences other aspects of Christian life. In other words, we are all called to serve in whatever capacity we are able to. Let us now turn to this. In the Orthodox Study Bible, the following line can be read in the commentary on Acts chapter 6 verses 2 to 4 related to the diversified ministries in the church, which I guess I just touched upon earlier. And it states, in the Orthodox Church to this day, the bishops and presbyters are called to focus on prayer and the ministry of the word, with other ministries being accomplished by the deacons and the laity. Isn't this interesting? Namely that there is a direct link between the role of most people listening now to the role that I have served in for the last few years. How can this be reconciled? Well, brothers and sisters, without disregarding the importance of, of course, prayer and the study of the word, this cohesion must come through the notion of service. How often do we attend a retreat or a gathering within the church and ask, what may I help with? How about when the hierarch or another priest or clergyman visit the parish? Do we not serve them accordingly? Are we serving one another? These are important questions. And this notion of service 
must always be at the forefront of our thoughts. I'm guessing that most of you would have attended church over the Easter period, correct? Well, people had to gather and prepare all these things. They definitely did not happen via osmosis. And this is an example of service. Therefore, let us always think about the gifts and abilities we have and how we may be able to offer these unto others. And not only unto others, but more importantly, unto God, which really, in a nutshell, suggests what the diaconate entails and more so what all our lives must entail. This is our life in the church. Amen. Now for a series of readings from the Philokalia. Take your weekly spiritual dose and reflect on the words of our Holy Neptic Fathers with this week's Philokalic Nourishment. The person who hates evil commits it, but seldom and then not intentionally. But the person attached to the causes of evil commits it frequently and deliberately. Elias the Presbyter Pray persistently about everything, and then you will never do anything without God's help. Undistracted prayer is a sign of love for God, but careless or distracted prayer is a sign of love for pleasure. St. Mark the Ascetic Through his incarnation, God gave us the model for a holy life and recalled us from our ancient form. In addition to many other things, he taught us, feeble as we are, that we should fight against the demons with humility, fasting, prayer and watchfulness. For when, after his baptism, he went into the desert and the devil came up to him as though he were merely a man, he began his spiritual warfare by fasting and won the battle by this means. Though, being God and God of gods, he had no need of any such means at all. Saint Hazehios, the priest. On May 15, in the Holy Orthodox Church, we commemorate our Venerable Father Pacomios, the Great of Egypt, Achilles, Bishop of Larissa, and Marta Barberos, the Myrrh Streaming of Corfu. On this day, the fourth Sunday of Pascha, we commemorate the paralytic, and as is right, we celebrate the miracle wrought for him. The Word of Christ was strength for the paralytic, so that this Word alone was the man's full healing. Jesus healed the paralytic at the sheep's pool, located near the sheep's gate of Jerusalem, where people sacrificed their beasts and washed their insides. The pool had five sides, with a porch and an arch on each. A number of people, afflicted with various diseases, passed through them, waiting at the water for an angel to come down and stir it. Once it moved, whoever stepped into the water first was instantly healed. One poor man, whose story is recounted in today's Gospel lection in the Divine Liturgy, waited 38 years for someone to lower him into the water because he was unable to move into the water himself. However, the Saviour merely commanded the man to get up and walk, and he was healed. 
In thine infinite mercy, O Christ our God, have mercy on us. Amen. Do you know who the desert mothers and fathers are? Desert Fathers and Mothers were a group of early ascetics who lived in the deserts of Egypt and in the 4th century. You may recognise some of the more popular fathers such as Saint Anthony the Great, Saint Marcarius the Great and Saint Moses the Ethiopian. But did you know there were also many women who led this ascetic life? The wisdom and saying of these holy men and women were originally preserved orally and passed down through generations before eventually being compiled into the book The Saying of the Desert Fathers. This book also preserves the sayings of female ascetics like Amma Theodora of Alexandria, Amma Syncletica of Alexandria, and Amma Sarah of the desert. Amma meaning spiritual mother, the equivalent of Abba, which means spiritual father. These ascetics pioneered a new way of life after the end of the era of martyrs and the legislation of Christianity. While life for most Christians was now a lot more comfortable, the desert fathers and mothers sought to continue the tradition of the martyrs by giving up their life for Christ in a different way, by shedding all their worldly possessions and retreating to the desert for a life of prayer and fasting. It's important to realise that life in the desert was and continues to be far from simple. A life in the desert is one that is not simply about cultivating self-discipline, but also warring with the demons and facing extreme trials and temptations. In the life of Saint Anthony, written by Saint Athanasios, Saint Anthony is said to have fought not only spiritually with the demons, but also withstood physical torment. In one instance, the demons were said to have made such a din that the whole place seemed to be shaken by an earthquake. 
It was as though the demons were breaking through the four walls of the little chamber and bursting through them in the forms of beasts and reptiles. Despite these trials, the ascetic fathers and mothers remained steadfast in their faith. The Sayings of the Desert Fathers contains over 700 sayings and covers a vast number of topics essential for the Christian's life, such as obedience, humbleness, charity, discretion, temperance, grief for sin, and vigilance. Such topics have a common focus, ascesis, or spiritual discipline. The sayings are often simple and short, yet rich and sometimes enigmatic. They often take the form of a conversation between a younger monk and his elder, or a conversation between a visitor and an elder, where the elder is asked, what shall I do to be saved? Although each elder responds in a way appropriate to the situation, most responses emphasize the importance of prayer, fasting, and humility, whereby the listener is exhorted to focus on his or her sins rather than the sins of others. While the sayings and lives of these holy men and women may seem distant and a world removed from our modern 21st century lives, we must remember that we too are called to similarly detach ourselves from worldly possessions and to focus on our lives on ascetic living, despite living busy city lives. Let us turn to the precious wisdom of the fathers and mothers who have come before us and pray for their intercessions on this journey. Let us take courage from the teaching of Amma Sinclerica, who says, It is a struggle and great toil at first to those who approach God, but then it is unspeakable joy. And now a reading from our Orthodox Library. An excerpt from the book Spiritual Awakening by St. Paisios. Man must consider the good to be a need, otherwise he will be tormented. And we can't say that some people are unable to understand the good as a need. I cannot justify this, for even a five-year-old child can feel the good as a need. Let's say that a little child has a fever. The parents call the doctor and he tells them to hold the child firmly while he gives the injection. Later the child, on seeing the doctor, will cry and run away. But if from the beginning they tell the child, look, you are sick, you have a fever and you can't go to school or go out to play, while the other children are playing. But if you let the doctor give you a little pinch in the arm, the fever will go away and you, too, will be able to go and play. The child will then directly close its eyes and stretch out its arms on his own. What I mean to say is that if the child can understand the good as a need, it's so much more true for an adult. From the moment someone understands what is right, the matter is settled. Supposedly I suddenly say to you, I'll throw you out of the window. You understand what that means. Even a mentally challenged person can understand that if someone falls out of a window high above the ground, he will break his legs. He understands the difference between level ground and a dangerous cliff what is good and what is evil. An adult who has read the Gospel, the writings of the Fathers, knows what is right. After that it's only a matter of turning the button. But often you say to people, why do you do that? Don't you know it's not right? And they start, well sadly that's how I am. I don't know why I'm like this, but that's how I was before too. Forget what you were before. Right now, as I speak to you, what are you doing to correct yourself? It's different if they are incapable of understanding. 
But only an infant child will touch a burning coal instead of candy because it doesn't understand. The spiritual daughter asks, How did your mother, who was so sensitive and who loved you, manage to give you and your siblings a strict upbringing from your earliest childhood years? Saint Paisios answers, One can be helped from a young age to grasp the deeper meaning of life and be happy for the right reasons. When I was a young boy, I could outrun the other children in the neighborhood. They didn't want me to raise them and would send me away. They called me the refugee boy. I would then go to my mother in tears. Why are you crying? She would ask. The other children won't let me run, I would say. You want to run? Here's our yard, run. Why do you want to run there? So others can see you and say bravo? This attitude has pride in it. Another time I wanted to play with the ball and the children wouldn't let me. Again I went crying to my mother. What happened? Why are you crying again? She asked. They won't let me play with the ball. I said, we have a big yard. You have a ball. Play here. Why do you want the other children to see you and admire you? This attitude has pride in it. Then it occurred to me, my mother is right. Gradually over time, I didn't want to run or play ball in front of others because I realized that this attitude had pride in it and I thought to myself, these really are useless things, mother is right. After that, I got over the problem and when I saw the other children running and kicking the ball with pride, I would smile and think to myself, what are they doing? And I was just a small child in the third grade. From then on, I lived a normal and natural life. So now if people ask me, would you prefer to climb Mount Athos barefoot in August over the briar leaves, or to go to a ceremony and be dressed with a cloak, and so on? I will say I prefer to go barefoot up Mount Athos. Now, this I say not out of humility, but because this is what pleases me and gives me peace. People who have pride were not helped at home in their childhood. The worldly frame of mind is tormenting for men. And if this isn't noticed and parents don't help their children from a young age, Pride then becomes an abiding condition. It's one thing to praise and encourage a child so he doesn't get disappointed, and quite another to fill up his mind with egoism. For example, a child recited a poem but did it poorly and was disappointed. Then the mother can encourage him by saying, but you did well enough. But if the child says the poem well and the mother begins in front of others to say, bravo, yours was the best recitation of all the children, my child is the best. This is wrong and harmful to the child. This is how parents often cultivate pride in their children. Or, to give you another example, a child misbehaves in school and is punished by the teacher. Then the child goes home and tells his parents, the teacher punished me unfairly. When the father or mother supports the child and says in front of it, I'll show that teacher, my child is the best then the child considers good what he did in school and is eventually tormented by useless things. The important thing is to teach the child a few basic things at home. If one grasps the deeper meaning of life from a young age, then everything goes well. Otherwise, one learns to be pleased with earthly things, with the praises of other men, which do not really please or comfort man, and he remains an earthly human being.
thank our listeners for following us on the Divine Lantern. Please head to antiochian.org.au for more details and for upcoming events in our Archdiocese. Wishing you a blessed week. Christ is risen, indeed he is risen.